sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We're here to lay waste to the rumor and innuendo you've heard about your favorite bands and favorite songs. I say lay waste, but maybe we're going to confirm them. I don't know. It sort of depends on the day. My name's Brian. And I'm Murdoch. Thanks for clarifying that, Brian. And welcome to the show, everybody. <laughs> we love it when you write us. We are the story guys at gmail.com. Like Kent. Kent writes the show. I love this one, Murdoch. You ready? Guys, I'm a huge fan of the band Drive By Truckers. I wonder if you could dig into the real story that inspired their song, Carl Perkins Cadillac. Wow. Hell yeah. Hey, Kit. Hey, Kit. Do you want to be pen pals? Hi. <laughs> this sounds like a great... What a what a great question about all the things that are fascinating to me just because of where I grew up. Right. Because yeah. this is going to get us to Murdoch territory. This is going to get us to Million Dollar Quartet, Sun Records, Sam Phillips, all that stuff. But let's let's talk for a second. Let's just talk about Drive-By Truckers. Are, do you consider yourself a fan? I wouldn't say I'm a, a, a big fan. I, I got to see them play once for that the the dirty south tour and then i've listened to their music as it's you know but i've i've listened to songs and then i listened to jason isbell as he became a solo yeah 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 yeah. there's a lot to put right to catch up on there right so if you're unfamiliar with dbt we'll just like to do the quick rock and roll bedtime stories primer because there's got to be some guy who's like i never listened to music past 1989 okay so here's the deal patterson hood mike cooley they have their Roots in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. They get together in mid-90s as the Drive-By Truckers, but before that, they'd met in college at North Alabama. They'd played together in several different musical outfits. In their time as the Truckers, they've been pretty impressive, had a nice career, still road warriors, playing out all the time, loyal following, but at the end of 2001, they lose a guitar player, and they hire this young kid, spoiler alert, you already said his name, just barely 22 years old at the time, while Patterson and Mike are both pushing 40. So, Move everything up 20 years. That means Jason Isbell is now in his early 40s. Patterson and Mike are their 60s or pushing 60. That's how long they've been around. And yes, that guy was Jason Isbell. Jason Isbell, you probably know him now from the 400 unit, one of the biggest names in American music, headlining festivals all over the country. Uh, but the lore is that Patterson and Mike, when he's a young kid, end up having to kick him out of the drive-by truckers for substance abuse issues. Yeah. And and just as a real quick thing, you kind of gave the primer of drive by truckers. It's kind of like if you if you if it's something that's new to you and that like number one, do you like ACDC? Kind of like it checks the box there. And do you like Leonard Skinner? Checks the box there. <laughs> it kind of it's like it really it like it hits it hits a couple of real it hits a couple of real warm stuff because some of their songs have there are pop hooks in it, but there there's some real dark yeah, like dark things that they cover that are totally, you know, um, well, and, and wacky. That, and that's the whole thing about this period that we're going to go to, because this song is on their record, Dirty South, which you mentioned, which is probably considered their masterwork up to this point. Uh, it comes out in 2004. 
And it is the third in a series of concept records um, that they put out that are all about their perception of the South as guys coming out of the South, as guys with more liberal politics, with guys with a really complicated relationship to where they're from. I don't know if you can relate to this at all, Murdoch, but, but they make these, these, this set of albums. One of them's a double album. So really it's like four records about the South and the dirty South marks one of the first times that Patterson hood lets off the gas a little bit as the main songwriter and allows both Mike Cooley and Jason Isbell to contribute heavily to the album. I'm not a super fan, but I do know that in one of their songs, they make an allusion to Pulaski, Tennessee. For sure. And for me and where I grew up, that's what what we call right down the road. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> that, that's, it's like... Wow, man! Right across Which, the holler, yeah. So it's it's no, I mean it's no, I mean it's like get on the interstate. It's like twenty minutes away. It's like oh, it's that place. So it it is interesting because for me, some of the themes are personal about the South. That some things that I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't discuss with people that aren't from the South. You mean like <laughs> you mean like the three song suite about Sheriff Buford Busser? Is that one of them? <laughs> I mean, the thing the thing is, is that it really hits it really hits things on the the nose. You know, they have a song called Pe- "Putting People on the Moon" about yep. like yep. spending money on NASA, yep. and then like epic, depressing like odyssey. Yep. about a community like dying, and, and 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 you know, it's like they they don't write things like that in. Uh, you know, like Led Zeppelin doesn't write things like that, and Bad Company doesn't write things like right, that, right? And Leonard Skinner doesn't write things like yeah. that. So it it is you from a unique perspective, right? That's a that's a good point. It's got it's got sort of the musical backbone of the bands you just listed, but the lyrical bone of a much more introspective, deep seated singer songwriter style, and that's what you see with the song we're going to talk about today. This is one of the Mike Cooley songs. So Mike Cooley wrote this song about Sam Phillips, Sun Records, and the rock and roll pioneer known as Carl Perkins. Before we get to the song itself, we probably need to get some of the players straight that I just rattled off. So we've talked about Sam Phillips before, an integral part of the Elvis story. You'll hear a lot about him if you go back into the back catalog uh, for the show, episode 67, called Elvis versus the Television. But to bring him into today's story, here's some background. Do you know what the Drive-By Truckers and Sam Phillips have in common? No, I don't know. Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Sam starts as a DJ and a radio engineer in Muscle Shoals in the 1940s. I got it. Yeah, okay. So that's because that's where he's, so they're both from the same place. Yeah, and I think that's part of the fascination, right? Is that they know that this legendary music guy, and they are carving their own path to becoming legendary music men, uh, they have this location in common. And it's a, not just a location. It's not just Peoria, Illinois, right? It's like it is a location that has become known for a particular rock and roll and musical sound. Yeah. And imagine having, thinking, whatever, that you have the same DNA as Sam Phillips. And as much as you know or you think you know about Sam Phillips, some people could say that he <laughs> was psychotic. Some people could say that he was clinically insane yeah some people could some people could remind you that sam phillips made elvis's star yep that you know it's like sam sam phillips like defined an era of era of rock and roll like he he did he did a ton of things but he was uh 
freaking odd dude. Well, any I mean, anybody that thinks with the amount of foresight and innovation that he was always thinking with is definitely going to be sort of a strange cat. And a great example of this, we've talked about this on the show before, but by 1950, Sam takes this gamble opening a recording service that will record amateurs. And and this was the big thing. Up to this point, it was very hard for you, Murdoch, with your guitar, to go put it on wax. And he'll do it for a price. Like, it just wasn't possible to do for a lot of people. But he takes good recordings, and then he sells them to other labels. So he's got this business plan. He's got this figured out from the beginning. And that plan works for a little bit, but then he realizes he has the means for production, so why not take some of the earnings himself? He creates his own label, and for the next 16 years, produces 226 singles under the banner and name of Sun Recording Company, a.k.a. the legendary Sun Records. And, and Brian, um, your favorite, you know, look at the, think of the label in your head, like what's your favorite sun side? Which one do you like? Well, I mean, I don't want to show all my cards, but we're going to talk about a very specific uh, Carl Perkins song that becomes a very, very big deal to rock and roll. <laughs> do you Do you have a specific one? I do have a specific one because it's just totally bizarre, and I like Billy Lee Riley's Flying Saucer Rock and Roll. I like that one a lot. Oh, right on! Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, and he 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 could have he could have made it, but there was another guy who had this song called "Whole Lot of Shaking" going on, and it mm-hmm. did a lot better. Mm-hmm. And and that was and that was it. Yep. For Billy Lee Riley, that was it. The music business is a fickle bitch. Uh, okay. We- <laughs> when we talk about the success of Sun Records, we we have to mention Elvis. Of course, he uh, does go to RCA very quickly, but he's on Sun for a little bit. And we cover this back on episode 67, but according to most popular accounts, Marion Keisker is actually the person who we have to thank for Elvis because in 1953, when he's driving trucks for a living, he wanders in during your shift and says he wants to record something oh. for his mom. Yeah. Marion keeps the tape. Marion says she makes Sam listen to it and then convinces Sam that he should record Elvis. He says that's BS and that it was all his idea. But to your point earlier, that's sort of Sam, right? Right. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But regardless, radio stations in the South start playing Elvis a little bit, but even a little does big things for Sam's studio. And he becomes known as the place that recorded Elvis. And now there's artists all across the area wanting to record where Elvis did. Pro tip to everyone that you can go to Memphis and you can go to that studio because it's still there. It's unbelievable. Whatever it costs, it's worth it. We got there five minutes late to take a tour and the guy was like, oh man, I'm sorry. You got, hey, I'll just, I'll, I'll take care of you guys for the next tour. And I was like, uh, thanks. Right. Pro Amazing tip, person. be five minutes late. And it was Sunday, and they all sang, there'll, there'll be peace in the valley. Like, it's wow. loud as hell. It was totally far out. <laughs> and then and then they take you to a room, and there's all this, like, his, like 
memorabilia and stuff and they tell you the story about sam and about how sam like almost got sued out of business for stealing someone's song and then it talks about howling wolf it talks about these things that basically predate elvis and the things that make him and they play rocket 88 loud as hell and then you go down the stairs and there's the studio and no one's demolished it and there's the freaking x you stand on the x unbelievable and it's and you're and like it's just not like oh i'm standing on the x where elvis was it's like the jordanaires were in this room oh you want a list it's like, let's let's do the list sonny burgess charlie rich <laughs> junior parker billy lee riley jerry lee lewis bb king johnny cash roy orbison and of course, Carl Perkins. Man, go go stand on the X. It's totally kick ass. Yeah, that's amazing. It's worth it. That's amazing. Uh, so let's connect the dots specifically to Carl Perkins. Carly Perkins, born April 9th, nineteen thirty-two, grows up in cotton fields, listens to the Grand Ole Opry, hears Roy Acuff, and asks mom and dad for a guitar. Wow. Uh, buying a guitar was not really an option, so they try to make him one. Not terribly successful. He gets one second hand eventually, but he has to retie the strings when they break. Have you ever tried to do that? I don't think you can do that with current guitar strings. Gosh, no. Uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, apparently. Carl and his brother eventually start playing bars when Carl is just 14 years old. They get paid in beers, because wow. that's how you pay a 14-year-old back in the 40s, I guess. And they, they get a reputation for fighting, because they're playing in the roughest spots um, in the area, but they become known as the Perkins brothers and yes. they start working their way into live radio performance, still keeping day jobs, doing manual labor, and then going out at night playing where they can. When he's young, Carl gets married and his wife is working outside the house and tells him to go full time with the music thing. She's going to keep working and trying to hold things down. He should really pursue it, which is quite the sentiment considering she knew that that in, in like 1950, all that meant was go to the bar. <laughs> like, there's no other place. It's not like, where else are you going to go, right? Pursue right, music. Go out every night and play at the bar and get in fights. Unless you're a star, there's nothing happening. There's nothing yeah. happening. So Carl needs to get bigger. And to do that, he needs more than just a guitar and a bass duo. So the Perkins brothers need a drummer. And they meet this guy who becomes their friend who has no experience drumming. But he has pretty good rhythm. <laughs> and this Please. is a guy... Yeah. This is a guy that you and I have hung out with. Oh, really? Oh, that's... Wait, he had no experience drumming? He had no experience drumming. That is W.S. <laughs> Fluke Holland, as he becomes known. And we have the craziest story about Fluke Holland. This is insane. So, Brian and I met this guy. Oh I don't gosh. even remember why we hung out with this guy. So on our very first podcast, like probably in the first 15 or 20 episodes, we get brought... W.S. Fluke Holland, and he's at the time, he's died since. He's died fairly recently, like in the last few years. Oh, I, I know why. I know what. There was like an Elvis tribute show, and well, okay. we got Fluke. So was right? it the Elvis tribute show that was always in the area every January, or was it when they launched Million Dollar Quartet as a touring musical? I think it might have been that because Fluke was in the room at million Do for the Million Dollar Quartet, which we will talk about later. Um, That's true. And okay. so it might have been that, but do you remember he had a side gig? Yeah, he's, was it like he sold sinks or something? Like countertops, I think. Countertops, yeah, yeah, he and, sold countertops. And so he was like, Man. yeah, I'll do an interview for your podcast. And we talked to him for like an hour. And then he's like, and let me tell you about these countertops. And we were like, what is happening right now? And he just starts pitching countertops. And it took us... For a minute to realize, because this was like 2000, what? This had to be 2011? No, not, no, 2012, 2013? Oh, gosh. Whenever they launched that tour. And 
we he wasn't aware of what a podcast was, right? He was just in a radio studio where we recorded. And so he right. was just pitching like it was like live radio. It was super bizarre and super amazing. And if I can dig it up, I'll put it on our page on Facebook and on the website. But we have a picture of us standing with W.S. Flu Collin. But by the way, I, I want to get at some point in my life where I can go and I hang out with someone on a microphone and at any point I can just drop into like Howard Stern selling Snapple or or flute selling like <laughs> countertops, <laughs> countertops. Woo! Like, it oh, was by, like not by explained. The, by to the us. way, <clears throat> by the way, since I'm here, Snapple, <laughs> Snapple tastes delicious when I'm thirsty every day that ends with a Y. Snapple. Oh, man. Okay, so I realize we have to get back to the main story, but we, I, we couldn't bring up Fluke and not talk about that story because that was g- the greatest. Okay, yeah. so... Weird. Remember how I said that Elvis making music on Sun became an advertisement for Sam Phillips' services? Yeah. This is literally what happens to Carl. So in July of 54, Carl and his wife hear Elvis doing Blue Moon in Kentucky on the radio. And one of them, Carl or his wife, depending on which of them you talk to, looked at the other and said, we need to go see that man in Memphis. That's what gets Carl Perkins to go to Memphis to get time in front of Sam Phillips in October. And Sam has songs out by Carl by early 55. That's how quick it happens. (laughs) And he's immediately putting him to play in theaters with Elvis in West Memphis and Arkansas. And pretty soon, he's added another act to that touring bill a guy named Johnny Cash who he has just signed and they're playing spots in Arkansas and Mississippi so imagine this being a guy who lived in Arkansas for a while and you know Arkansas doesn't get a lot of a fair shake when it comes to much history Um, what a triple bill but but music history I mean insanity right that Elvis Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins were on the same bill playing little theaters and clubs in Arkansas and Mississippi yeah and eventually, man, I mean, we have to get into this now, or you can tell us we're going to get into it later, but like Carl, like Carl becomes an incredibly influential guitar player. Like for Pete. I mean, we can get into it now. It's important. What I wanted to do was connect the dots between Elvis, Carl, and Johnny because all their association becomes part of the story. But I mean, if you want to talk about him as a guitar player, go for it. Um, so I'm going to say two words and maybe I'll just step back and we'll just get back in the store. If you want to George Harrison. Yeah, there you go. Where we, where, okay. Where were we going next? Let's, uh, so, let's keep going. <laughs> okay. So back to this question that Kent asked us about the song, Carl Perkins Cadillac and what it's really about. If you just Google Carl Perkins Cadillac or something like that, basically the first sentence or two you're going to get is something that says, Elvis, Carl, Johnny Cash, and Jerry Lee Lewis all ended up one night in the recording studio. This, of course, is what famously becomes known as the Million Dollar Quartet. There are recordings that eventually service of this evening, so it did happen. It got fictionalized. It got turned into a Broadway play. That's, I think, how we met W.S. Flew Holland. That's how big of a deal it was. We will talk about that in a little bit. But the next sentence you would get on Google would then say something like this. Sam Phillips challenged those four people, Elvis, Carl, Johnny Cash, and Jerry Lee Lewis, to a contest and promised to buy a Cadillac for whichever one of them got a gold record first. Uh-uh. Is that no how way. you've is that how you've heard the story? No, no. And, and and whenever I hear Elvis and Cadillac, I just imagine him being like, here you go, we're gonna take home and Cadillacs for you. You know, it's like <laughs> I just imagine Elvis giving out Cadillacs. Mm. My so, my hey, 
my mom saw Elvis with a Cadillac because she grew up next to this guy and he became the governor of Tennessee oh, and his yeah. daughter went out with Elvis and, and Elvis drove up. <laughs> this is unbelievable. In his frigging this is the, Cadillac. This is the best story ever. The fact that your mom's you, neighbor dated Elvis. That's the best story I've ever you, heard. Can you imagine being like in the 50s and you're Elvis and you've got a freaking Cadillac? You're just driving around like like how slate. It's unbelievable. It's, it's, it's nuts. So <laughs> here, here's the thing about this story. When I started digging into this, Carl Perkins Cadillac, this is what I got was basically everywhere just sort of offhanded mentions of, yes, Sam Phillips bought Carl Perkins a Cadillac because he won a contest. To, to be the first artist on Sun Records to uh, sell like a million copies or whatever. Have a gold record. Now, it's kind of true. It is true that Sam Phillips bought Carl Perkins a Cadillac. Sort of. And it's related to Blue Suede Shoes being very successful. But in the spirit of this show, I'm here to tell you some of these details are very much not correct. So first, let me illustrate a timeline. As I said, when you normally look at this story with a quick Google search, the Million Dollar Quartet gets attached to it. And the Million Dollar Quartet happened and it's well documented. So we know when that happened. It took place December 4th, 1956. Another thing that is well documented is the success of Blue Suede Shoes. It went gold in April of 1956. So eight months before the Million Dollar Quartet. So what happens is these two things get conflated, but they're totally separate stories. So if the information in articles mostly narrativizes and collapses this story into this legend, who are we going to consult for, for the truth? For that, I have turned to Peter Gerlinick. Peter Gerlinick. I was like, oh my gosh, do we have the same brain? Apparently so. <laughs> so have you read either of his books? So he wrote a book about Elvis called Last Reign of Memphis. He wrote two books about Elvis. And and the first book begins like the beginning of Elvis and it ends where he's in the army and he's starting to take amphetamines. Mm -hmm. And then the second book begins and then... And the last chapter of that book is like it opens and it's like the goal began. The goal is now for Elvis to be on stage for 80 minutes, you know, and it's very clear that they're giving him barbiturates right, and right. whatever, whatever they're giving him to keep him awake. I mean, he's just on uppers and downers the whole time. He has yeah. this other book about Sam called Sam Phillips, the man who invented rock and roll. Yes, and so and I read that, and it's great. Dude. It's very good, and that's the text we're going to turn to to get the real skinny on this whole situation because it's about as close as we can get to something that I feel is is reputable and well-researched and has most of the details. So let's start by going back to the creation of Blue Suede Shoes because that's the tune at the core of all this, and if we go back there, we're returning to those early days in the 50s when Carl, Elvis, and Johnny Cash are touring the southern states. There's several versions of how this song came to be, but the one that seems most consistent is the one that features Johnny Cash telling Carl Perkins backstage about a guy he knew in the armed forces who was standing in line for food one night at the mess hall when someone stepped on his shoes. And the guy was like being funny. And so he makes this big mock production of outrage and utters the phrase, don't step on my blue suede shoes, which of course is hilarious because he and everyone else in the mess hall 
were wearing identical Air Force issue footwear. Yeah. So it's sarcasm, right? Now, a few nights later, Carl gets home late from a gig, starts thinking about that stupid story, sneaks out to the steps of the public housing where he and his wife and two babies are living, which is an interesting thing. He lived in public housing for a very long time, even while he was having some success. He There ends up being... Uh, he he ends up getting a big influx of cash at one point and it be backfires because it gets him kicked out of public housing. Like I read that <laughs> reading this book, which is uh, an aside from this story, but very interesting. Um, wow. So he sneaks out to the steps of public housing and on the back of this paper where he had just emptied potatoes out of this brown paper sack, he starts to write out one for the money, two for the show. Well, it's one for the money. Two for the show, three to get ready. Now go, cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. You can do anything but get off of my blue suede shoes. He gets to the studio that Saturday. He calls Sam, and he's like, I'm, I, I want to record this. And he, Gerlinex says, he sings him a snippet over the phone. And Sam, over the phone, is immediately convinced that he has a hit on his hands. So he like speeds off to the recording studio and the, the, an official recording session commences. It's also awesome because they do three takes of this. I don't know if you know this about blue soy shoes. No first one, not good enough. Second one, Carl doesn't like it because he fumbles on the guitar for a moment and he says the wrong word. He's supposed to say, go man, go. And he says, go cat, go. And yeah. Sam tells him to keep it. And he yeah. says, no, 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 no. I have to have another take. I screwed up. He's a bit of a perfectionist. Sam's like, whatever. So Sam lets him cut a third, trashes the third, and they put out the second. So the ver- the Carl Perkins version of Blue Suede Shoes that you know oh is the wow. second take where he says, go cat, go, instead of go man, go, which now it seems silly to say go man, go. Because Go Cat Go is such a part of that song. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of the the vibe of of Carl Perkins. Well, yeah. And it it sort of creates the vibe of Carl Perkins, right? I mean, it's so funny that a a mistake, which, you know, you could probably argue is sort of his natural way shining through, but that that it is a mistake and it, it goes on to define him. Now, Sam would normally ship a record like this to Chicago to have it mastered, but he's so excited he masters it himself, and then he does a rush job to get it duplicated. This is mid-December, so it doesn't get officially released until January 5th of 1956, but for the two weeks between the recording and the release, he dubs a version of it and sends it to local DJs, and so they're playing it constantly around town. And the single immediately starts selling out its shipments. It's hard to put in understandable terms what this was like because it's been 60 some odd years later, you know, now. Yeah. But this record changes everyone's life at Sun. Sam's gross sales in the last quarter of 1955 versus his gross sales in the first quarter of 56, 6X. He goes from making less than 50K to making almost 300K in one quarter. Oh, gosh. He does 356. 350K. Yeah, these are 1956 numbers. 350K in Q2. Now, Sam's thrilled, and he knows Carl is to thank. 
So he takes care of them. By February, so the comes out in January. By February, when things are starting to heat up, he surprises him at a show in Texas, comes out on stage with an actual pair of blue suede shoes. By March, they have him booked to do Perry Como. The Perry Como show, March 24th, with special musical guest Carl Perkins. Early March, in advance of this TV time, the band is back to record a follow-up at some point in the, in the month. And during that session, Sam's in the studio and says casually to Carl something like, hey, are you going to get yourself a fancy new ride in advance of being a fancy TV performer? And Carl demurs. <laughs> he says he's, he's just bought his wife a washing machine and he's not ready for another big purchase. And Sam's, wow. Sam says to Carl... Don't worry about it. Have it all arranged. You go see my pal Joe down at Southern Motors Cadillac, and he's going to take care of you. And Carl's blown away. Can't believe Sam would do this. But he's not one to look a gift car in the mouth, as they don't say. So he goes and picks out a dark blue four-door with a white top. Now, what about this challenge between artists to produce a hit? According to Gerlinick, there was no challenge. That rumor and the lore that has followed this story just comes from one Johnny Cash interview at some point where Johnny Cash says that Carl had told him Sam had been saying for some time, like something sort of akin to whichever one of you boys is the first one to bring me a gold record. I'm going to buy you a Cadillac, right? Like sort of like you would like a coach would say like first one to get a home run, you get an ice cream sundae, right? Like sort of like that. Yeah. (laughs) You get the sense it was hyperbole. Something a boss yeah. says to his employees, something a manager says to his sellers, right? Now, not something that is taken entirely seriously. Now, I'm glad that I'm glad that Carl got a Cadillac, considering he uh, was shipping so many records, and he had just bought a washing machine with his money. <laughs> I love that little detail. Plus, and another thing about this story is that if you see, like I said, if you see sort of the internet version of the story, Jerry Lee Lewis is included. They haven't met Jerry Lee Lewis yet. They don't meet Jerry Lee Lewis until October. At the Million Dollar Quartet, Jerry Lee Lewis is the new kid. That's correct, yeah. So when you hear all about this put this way, it's a little different, right? But this isn't the end of the story. So Carl secures this car with the intent to actually drive it to Perry Como, as was suggested by Sam. (laughs) But the dealership couldn't have it ready in time. So Joe at the car lot says, listen, you can take a loaner. It's not as fancy as your cool Cadillac, but it's pretty nice. So he gives them a 1953 eight-seater Chrysler Imperial. An eight-seater. What what insane piece of metal is this? Okay. <laughs> well, that seeming inconvenience, insane piece of metal, that boat of a car, saves Carl's life. <gasps> Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by Athletic Greens and their product, AG1. If the pandemic taught me anything, it's that my immune system needs to be in tip-top shape, and AG1 helps me get there. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, they're all there, and bonus, it does not taste bad, which is really good. Uh, It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, any of that stuff, contains less than one gram of sugar and helps better sleep quality and mental clarity and alertness. Really good when you're doing a lot of rock and roll research. It's important to me, right? Uh, So listen, it's time for you to reclaim your health. 
Arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop, cup of water every day. That's it. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Go check it out and just make sure you put athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. So Dick Stewart had been a DJ on the radio for quite a while, but he had just gotten a new gig. And this new gig was the role of Carl Perkins' manager. Did you ever did you ever fantasize about that when you were on radio? Did you think, like, one day I'm going to meet a musician that comes through here, and they're going to be like, you're a cool cat. Why don't you come on the road with me and be my manager? I, I probably entertained that thought at some point. I'm going to say absolutely no. It seemed like it would be such a pain in the ass. <laughs> it is. Being a manager would be the worst. But Dick Stewart takes it on. Uh, and potentially because he was the new guy on this team and felt a need to protect his ward and prove himself simultaneously, Dick decides to take the late shift driving. It's early on March 22nd. The sun's just coming up over the road outside at Dover, Delaware. And this is the moment that Sleepy Dick falls asleep. And he drives, nice. that, he drives that loner Chrysler Imperial into the back of a local farmer's pickup truck. Now... When I describe it like that, it sounds like it might be a fender bender. It is not. The Chrysler, think about how big these things are. That thing rolls four times. The last roll sends it off a bridge, and it lands right side up next to a stream. Oh, wow. The thing saved Carl's life. Well, he gets out with a concussion and a broken collarbone. Carl's brother, yeah. Jay, breaks his neck and has internal injuries. The farmer they hit dies. Oh, so the driver. Yeah. It's a tragic accident. Obviously, Carl doesn't make it to Perry Como. That appearance gets rescheduled for the end of May. And when Carl makes it back on the road, Jay doesn't come back out for a while because he's still suffering effects from the accident, like severe headaches. Now, Carl does finally get his fancy car. And you've maybe seen this picture. A guy at the Press Scimitar, which is an old Memphis newspaper, he gets a shot of the two side by side, the wreck and the caddy. Sam shows up for the photo op and hands over the keys, smiling the whole time. Because <laughs> uh, he's, he's Sam, right? As you've already alluded to. But this story doesn't end as nicely as it sounds. A few years later, someone, I'm assuming an accountant of some sort, alerts Carl that Sam didn't pay for that car. Carl did. Oh, and then there's taxes. It seems the cost of the Cadillac came out of Carl's royalties. Now, Sam has been questioned about this, and he says that Carl misunderstood him, that all he meant to do was advance the royalties so Carl could have something nice to drive, and he would help him get it below the normal cost. And that right, which did sounds, indeed happen. That's that that's what that that's what that that did. That's yeah. way to go, Sam. Yeah. I mean, that's fair, right? But the story throughout history has been blown up into this idea that Sam Phillips bought Carl Perkins's Cadillac as a gift and that's not what happened. So, with that color added, I'm left with this question. What are we supposed to take away from the drive-by trucker song? Huh. Do they get it did they get it right? So, 
if you know this story now and you read back over the lyrics, I think you can feel the cynicism. I mean, the drive-by truckers, we touched on this. They don't right. write happy songs, right? Yeah, and I think yeah. this is a reflection on what a drag the music industry is because even yeah. when somebody seems like they're in your corner, they're not. Now, they don't yeah, really come that, out and say that in the song, but I think that's what you're supposed to take from it. Yeah, and I've, I've thought that before, but I haven't thought about it in terms of you know, the discussion we're having now. Well, it's, it makes it very different. I found that the Drive-By Truckers have original liner notes for the Dirty South archived on their website. The link is in the show notes, of course. Oh, oh my gosh. And in these liners, Patterson Hood recalls a lot of memories, and he relays stories from each member that sort of make up the album. And as I already pointed out, Sam Phillips and Patterson Hood grew up in the same area, and Mike Cooley's dad took him to see Carl Perkins play when he was a kid. Oh, my said his mind was blown away by what he saw, quote, unquote. So Mike Cooley has a personal connection to falling in love with rock and roll by watching Carl Perkins. But the song, when taken alongside the attitude and pessimism of the rest of the album, really does seem to rely on you as the listener to understand that that little detail about who paid for Carl's Cadillac is not as cheery as it sounds. It's like a warning about the dangers of the music industry. But with... All that covered. Should we touch on the Million Dollar Quartet? Yeah, just in case. I mean, it's fun to talk about anyway because it's so awesome. It's like the first supergroup of supergroups. Dude, how much time, I will say, I got real distracted writing this episode listening to these recordings because they exist and I threw them in the show notes. You can go listen to the complete sessions and it really is like the recorder's sort of running and sometimes people are on mic and not on mic and it's it feels like you're in a room just overhearing all of these guys hanging out and telling each other stories. It's just quite the rock and roll document. If you're, if you're into the birth of rock and roll at all, it is a must hear. When I say go marching in, well, I have uh, But it starts as a Carl Perkins session. It's it's about a year after Blue Suede Shoes, uh, December to December. And Carl, for what I think was only the the only time ever, maybe, brought his dad to the studio that day. And... Sam is working with this kid from Louisiana who's wild and unrefined, but undeniably hard not to be impressed by, Jerry Lee Lewis. So he tells Carl, I got this new kid. I want you to use him on this session because he thinks Jerry Lee will spice up Carl a little bit, right? Carl's start, starting to become the old man on campus, right? So here, here's this young upstart. Put him in on your session. They start messing around. It's going pretty well. And then Elvis and his girlfriend walk in. This was like a common thing where Elvis would stop by to see Sam. And so he drops in to say hi, and uh, the work sort of stops because Elvis is in the building, literally. So it just becomes a hang, and they're telling stories and goofing off, and they start to all congregate around the piano. And as we already said, you could say a lot of things about Sam Phillips if you want. One thing we know is that he is not stupid and that he knows a marketing op when he sees one. So what's better than two rock stars gathered around a piano with a guy who might be a rock star soon? Three rock stars gathered around that piano. (laughs) So he calls Johnny Cash. 
And this is, I, I saw this document in several places. Johnny Cash is Christmas shopping. Wow. With, with his wife and says, bro, I'm Christmas shopping. And he says, but I guess I can stop by, or I guess, you know, he's probably not on his cell phone in, in 1956, but he is headed out to go Christmas shopping. So, hey, we're going to go Christmas shopping, but I guess I can stop by for a minute. And then Sam calls that same guy who got the picture of him in front of the two Cadillacs a few months back and says, you're going to want to come see this. And that's why we have oh. pictures. That's okay. Wow. That's great. But I damn, dude. The choice, of, the choice of songs that they sing are great. Well, yeah. yeah. They're like hymns and spirituals and like pop songs right. sung by different people at the time. Like it's just, it's fascinating to hear these voices, these hugely famous voices. You know Elvis's voice. You know Johnny's voice. And to hear them talking back and forth and singing different harmonies. And, and there's this whole thing where, I don't know if you've heard this on the tapes, but Elvis is telling a story about being in Vegas and watching someone and do an impersonation of him doing Don't Be Cruel. And so there's like, if you look at the, the listing of any recording of this, you'll see like three or four versions of Don't Be Cruel back to back. And he keeps doing an impression of a guy doing an impression in these different versions of Don't Be Cruel. So there's like just stuff like that. Like, like you know, Elvis just kicking it around with his buddies. Uh, it's it's absolutely fascinating stuff. I, I recommend. My favorite part about the whole thing is Jerry Lee because I found I find that he's a show dog and I find that he's 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 shaking his ass during those recordings. Well, can like, can really? you imagine being that guy in that room? So you're not a thing yet. No. I mean, imagine the confidence you have to have to be to just hang out in in that room with those three guys at that moment in time, and to be convinced that you're going to hell because <laughs> that's where he was at. He was like, "I'm just going to hell." Yeah, yeah, man. We, whew. yeah, wow. Um, quite a story. Thank you, Kent, for the note. Um, I love to talk about. New and old rock. So this is like sort of perfect. Get to talk about the truckers and the bands that inspired them. Hell yeah, Kent. And hey, Kent, if you get a chance, go to Memphis and go to Sun Studios, man. It's a trip. Super cool. And if you want to get involved in the show, if you've got a question for us, uh, feel free. Hit us up. It is wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. You can get involved on our website as well. That is wearethestoryguys.com for everything we've got going on. and in all capacities, you can find it there. And please leave a review, a comment, that sort of thing. Anywhere you've downloaded this show, it helps other people find us, and we appreciate it. Uh, what do people need to do until next time, Murdoch? Keep telling stories, everybody. Thank you very much. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.